Industry Talks is here to bring you the best and brightest in the aviation industry. We will be speaking with industry experts on a wide range of topics, from career successes to career changes. The aviation industry is on the rise, and we're here to help you navigate through these unexpected times. Whether you are entering or re-entering the workforce, this is the pilot podcast that you've been asking for. Joining us today is Boeing 737-800 Captain Instructor and Head of the Mango Airlines Post Maintenance Testing Program, Matthew Rogers. Matt has spent a number of years developing the post maintenance checking protocols for Mango with guidance from Boeing as well as industry experts. We're chatting about how he got involved in the program in the first place, how it's evolved over the years, the plan that goes into each flight, and some of the dangers associated with post maintenance checking. Thanks for, for joining us and uh, being willing to be a part of the show uh, today. It's a great privilege to have you on Industry Talks and we're looking forward to what you have to say today. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks very much for having me here. Looking forward to, uh, to talking through the subject. Now, today, it's quite an interesting topic and it's something that not a lot of people really know much about. I know myself, uh, I don't know. Um, as much about it as I like, which is why it's so great to have you have you sharing the the discussion around specifically post maintenance test flying in South Africa. Um, something that you've almost kind of uh, developed into an expert on, and we'll touch more uh, touch more about that a bit later. But before we climb into that, I always like to ask the first question. Everyone that comes on the show, we all share something in common. We're all aviators, all have a passion for aviation. Everyone's got their story as to, you know, what sparked this desire, this need to be part of the industry. So just to kick things off from your side, where did this relationship or, or career with aviation all begin for you? Um, I come from a flying family. So my grandfather is a retired um, airline pilot. He was actually chief training captain at South African Airways for many years. Um, my father's a retired airline captain. He took early retirement last year with COVID. He was a captain on the A350. Uh, two of my uncles are airline captains at the moment and one of my cousins. So flying is in the family. And for as long as I can remember, it's, it's all I ever wanted to do. And I was able to start relatively early. Um, I got my PPP out of the age of 17 and then went into full-time flying immediately after high school. And I've had a very fortunate journey from, from there until now. And let's talk about that journey. You're, so you started flying at 17. You, you're obviously coming from uh, one of those aviation families where you're surrounded by all things aviation. Um, you know, in those formative years, such a critical part and a really great thing to be, to be part of. Uh, getting out of or completing commercial pilot's license, where, where did you train? I did my PPL initiate in Syria, in the Syria Flight Center, and then the rest of the training I did at Grand Central at uh, what was then known as Babcock Central Flying Academy. 
and I then worked there as an instructor afterwards as well. Okay, and what was your, you're currently working at Mango Airlines, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in a bit, but what was your career progression to get to where you are today? So after completing my comm, I did my instructor's rating immediately thereafter, and I was lucky enough to land a job at the flight school as an instructor, and I instructed there for about a year before moving on to a charter company uh, known as Gemax Aviation back then. It's subsequently been rebranded. And I flew turboprops and um, light piston twins there for about uh, three years. And then I went to Airlink um, onto the Embraer 135 fleet, which I flew for just over two years, and then moved on to Mango, where I am at the moment. Okay, so very, let's just say, a typical progression through your career, you know, reaching all those, those individual stepping stones to, to get to the next point. Uh, which is Mega Airlines, where you are currently. And what's your portfolio? What What is your, aside from being a pilot, you fill a number of different roles there. Can you just, just uh, enlighten us on exactly what your various positions are within the organization and the projects you're responsible for? Sure. So they say, uh, you know, never volunteer for anything in life. <laughs> I didn't learn that rule. So I volunteered for everything um, at Mango. So I'm a training captain, as well as a designated flight examiner. And that revolves around the pilot training and pilot testing for, for license renewal, et cetera. And then a technical pilot as well, which is a bit of a, a multifaceted role, but it's focused predominantly on the management of the electronic flight bag uh, platform we use, the flight performance software, uh, databases for aircrafts, uh, the library, the aircraft manuals, MELs, et cetera, and then liaising with the technical department about technical issues, maintenance issues, snags, uh, bulletin compliance. And that leads into the, uh, the the post-maintenance test flying that we do as well. Yeah, which is which is an awesome, awesome topic. Um, you know, one doesn't normally typically volunteer for these kinds of, of jobs, um, specifically the number of, of roles that you fulfill there, unless you really have kind of a, a passion for the organization that you work for. You know, those kind of guys always seem to shine through. Um, looking at, at Mango, you're clearly very passionate about, about the organization, the company. Um, was Mango always a, a goal of yours? Was it always an, an airline you wanted to fly for? Um, what about the company really drew you towards it as an organization? Um, look, the, the Mango of, of today and the Mango of then are unfortunately very different places. Um, but yeah, I was certainly very passionate about the airline you know, for a number of years. Uh, at the time, I was drawn by three primary draw cards. Um, first and foremost, I thought it was a great airline at that stage. It was well run, it was expanding, it was progressive. Um, it was something to be proud of back in 2014 when I joined. Secondly, I really wanted to fly the 737-800. At that stage, my dad had flown the time for about 10 years during his time at SAA. And I'd spent many, many flights on the jump seat of that aircraft. And I really wanted the opportunity to to fly the aircraft. And finally, at that stage, the training department was manned by some real legends of aviation. Uh, Scully Levine, Rodney Chin, Russell Knowles, Quinton Mouton, Peter Cook. Absolute legends of aviation with worldly experience spanning decades and already wanted to work with those gentlemen and learn from them um, and I was very privileged to do so. So, so it's really multifaceted, the aircraft, the people, you know, it's, it's often just the people that make up the organization, um, you know, there's mentors, guys drawing on on years of experience. I mean, Scully, obviously very well known within, within uh, the local 
South African Aviation Circle. So, so I mean, Rodney Chin, massively experienced guy. I don't think you'll find anyone with as much time on the 737 as, as, as Rodney Chin and uh, Russell Mills as well. He, deeply experienced guy. Um, you know, he, he's flown almost everything under the sun. He's been exposed to all kinds of operations and a great, great people to work with and to learn from. But now post-maintenance test flying, you know, something that everyone talks about at all levels, whether you're taking a, a 152 out of a hangar just to, to make sure that everything's tightened up securely as it should be. Imagine something very, very different on, you know, the 737-800, or I like to think uh, something that would be way more involved. Um, starting at the beginning, what kind of experience is required to become a post-maintenance test pilot? So in South Africa, the legislation is concerningly thin on the topic. Um, and it's uh, one of the issues I have with this whole subject. But essentially, there's two classes of test pilot rating, which the CA uh, have available in Part 61. Uh, a class two test pilot rating requires you to have a PPL or higher. It requires you to have 500 hours total time and 300 hours of piloting command time. And this is the interesting requirement here. You have to satisfy the director that you have adequate knowledge of test flying techniques with no further information given as to how one would do that, um, which is a little bit vague for something as you know critical as, as this type of operation. And then the next uh, class of, of test pilot is a class one, for which you need 1,000 hours total time, 700 hours of pilot and command time, and then to have attended a recognized test pilot course. And that would be something like going to, to proper test pilot school, typically your candidates that would do that would be engineering school graduates, et cetera. So that's a, a very different caliber of, of test pilot rating. Okay, so could you expand on that a bit more? You mentioned it's a different caliber of test pilot rating. Um, what what separates the privileges of the two? Is is a class two uh, test pilot rating something that's exclusively focused towards post maintenance test flying, uh, or is is it a bit more complex than that? No, it's not. So under Part sixty one in the law, it's um, it's regulated as being post-maintenance test flight rating, I think it is, or post-maintenance test flight mm -hmm. rating. But no, the privileges are not limited to that at all. So a class two, which is what I have, and what I think most of the South African test pilots holders have, it qualifies you to be pilot in command of an experimental prototype aircraft weighing in at less than 2.7 tons, or to be pilot in command of any other test flights, provided you hold the appropriate class or type rating. That'd be where your post-maintenance flying comes into it. Whereas a class one, which is the higher tier rating, has the same privileges as the class two, plus you can act as pilot in command of a prototype aircraft, an experimental prototype aircraft, weighing in more than 2.7 tons within a test flight schedule approved by the director of aviation. So that would be production test flying for a, a new type of aircraft. Weirdly enough, with a class two, which is what I have, you can be pilot in command of an experimental prototype of less than 2.7 tons. So you can still do production test flying on, on very light aircraft. And uh, that's where the, the lack of training requirements that exist in the law are potentially, you know, leaving a, a bit of a gap in, in knowledge, et cetera. Okay. So, yeah, so essentially that is 
like you mentioned, it's limited to very light experimental aircraft, but it doesn't limit you to anything beyond that for an aircraft coming out of maintenance, for example, like a 737 or an A320. Correct. And what tends to happen is many of us, myself included, obtained the class two test pilot rating a long time ago on light aircraft by uh, by gaining experience doing sort of acceptance flights after MPIs and light aircraft. And in terms of the law, you are not qualified to go and do a post-maintenance check flight on an airliner after a heavy maintenance. And that's a very different ballgame. And uh, the law doesn't provide any differentiation between doing that type of flying on on larger, more complex aircraft versus doing it on on simple aircraft. So there's no actually... In the law, it doesn't really regulate it terribly much. I mean, you know, if that's all you know, if your primacy is taking a, you know, a Duchess for a circuit or to the to general flying area and back, um, and that's kind of setting the standard, one could almost fall into the trap of bringing a similar kind of approach to, you know, an aircraft such as the 737. Um, you know, you want, you often tend to fall back on what you know. Um, so starting at the beginning, beginning with regards to what you did uh, with your current operator, how did you end up getting involved in post-maintenance test flying on the bay? Um, Shortly after I became an instructor, I then approached the then chief pilots and expressed my interest in getting involved. And I was rostered to do a couple of post-maintenance test flights with him. Being an instructor, being dual seat rated, I could fly in, in either seat. And so I gained some time specific experience while flying with him and that then led to me being rostered to do subsequent post maintenance test flights as PIC myself and uh, over a period of of time uh, I then went on to do research with both the manufacturer and with some really knowledgeable subject matter experts um, in this country and that's what really highlighted to me the fact that this is not something that should be taken for granted this is not a simple process this is a really critical process and that's led to me developing what I think is a slightly more comprehensive post-maintenance test flight program at Mango Airlines. And uh, that's based largely on what we see in Europe. So to give you a little bit of history, um, the world generally tends to agree, when I say the world, the world's aviation bodies and authorities and operators tend to agree that post-maintenance test flying operations are quite high risk, but they can't really agree on how best to regulate them. So there have been a number of conferences over the years and several publications have emerged from those conferences with recommendations. But EASA, the uh, European regulator, has taken it to the degree of of regulating it in law with regards to post-maintenance test flight operations. An operator is required to publish a check flight manual, which is a bit like flight operations manual, which details all the, the variables from crew training to crewing personnel to uh, conditions of light and weather and fuel and weight and balance and CRM, et cetera. And you have to operate in accordance with those provisions. And uh, the other thing you also have done, which I think is critical here, is they've stipulated minimum crew training requirements. And that was based on a number of incidents, but specifically an accident that took place in 2008 uh, on an Airbus A320 that was doing a post-maintenance check flight out of France in a place called Perpignan. And uh, during this particular test flight, the, the crew ended up uh, having an undesired aircraft state after an approach to stall and uh, insufficient altitude to recover and actually crashed 
into the Mediterranean and killed everyone on board. And that really catalyzed the change in regulation in Europe, which led to the formation of what I mentioned before, the uh, requirement for a check flight manual and proper documented crew training. Okay, so two, two interesting uh, bits of information there. First of all, um, what was the root cause of that crash? Was it something specifically to do with maintenance or was it more down to the, the, the experience or lack thereof from the flight crew or combination there? Like with most accidents, it was a whole combination of, of things. But a bit of history there. It was an aircraft that was leased from Air New Zealand to a German operator uh, for a period of time. And that lease agreement had now come to an end and the aircraft was being returned to the owner, to Air New Zealand. And part of the return to owner uh, process required a, a post-maintenance check flight or demonstration flight, which was not really that well planned in terms of an ATC approvals standpoint. So they weren't able to do all of the maneuvers that they should have done at altitude because air traffic control couldn't accommodate them, one of which was the approach to stall and recovery. So they ended up doing the approach to stall at relatively low altitude whilst approaching the airport. And what they didn't know is a few days before that aircraft had been pressure washed and water had got into the angle of attack veins and angle of attack sensors and uh, two of the three of them had frozen during the test flight and they'd frozen at a at quite a low angle of attack position so as the aircraft approached the stall the uh, automatic um, flyby wire system didn't respond as as expected and when the aircraft actually did stall, stalled with a very high amount of nose up stabilizer trim uh, which made it very difficult to recover and the crew were actually unable to recover it didn't really identify that it was a that it was in an out-of-trim situation because it was so unexpected. Um, and that's you know, that really is what led to the change of regulation from EASA's point of view, that the crew need to be better trained in terms of how to conduct test flights and the risks associated, and then how to conduct uh, or how to deal with abnormalities like uh, a stall gone wrong in this particular instance. Okay, but you also mentioned that uh, the operator is expected to put together a, a list or an itemized list of, um, you know, crew requirements, uh, flight tests themselves, and then submitted to the authority. Yes. So there's still quite a bit of onus placed on, on the operator itself. Does the manufacturer offer much guidance, um, you know, for the operators to structure structure a program around that because you know if we look at Boeing Airbus and almost any large aircraft manufacturer in terms of procedures you get your flight crew operating manual it literally details the aircraft systems how to operate um you know the aircraft in accordance with the manufacturer's standard operating procedures do does a company like Boeing for example offer much guidance around post-maintenance test flying um, so in answer to your question, yes, the operators do publish um, documentation or guidance material on maneuvers and, and tests to be accomplished. And in the case of Boeing, they actually have two different publications. One of them is a change of operator demonstration profile, which would typically be done in the type of example that led to that Perpignan crash where an aircraft is changing operators. It's moving from one operator to another. And then the other publication that Boeing issue is for uh, aircraft coming out of long storage or following very heavy maintenance. And the two are actually quite similar. The, the maneuvers and the tests contained therein are quite similar. Airbus, uh, take it one step further, they have a, a series of manuals published for different types of test flying. And I'm not an Airbus specialist, so I'm not going to comment 
too much on those, but Airbus actually offer a, a course for pilots. Uh, I think they call it a, a TMM. I'll, I'll find what TMM stands for shortly, but it's essentially an Airbus course that trains crew on the conduct of post-maintenance test flight operations. And that's part of the council, a very, very good course to, uh, to attend. Then you mentioned the operator, the onus lies with the operator to develop their own procedures. And I'll just read you a little excerpt from the ERSA regulations as to what your, your manual, your check flight manual and your operator needs to contain. Uh, just a summary. General considerations, which would be when is a check flight required, the release to service, the flight authorizations, basically the legalities concerning it. Then aircraft status with regards to MEL, CDLs, fuel loading, mass imbalance, crew selection, uh, training, briefings, uh, post-flight debriefing, uh, contents of the actual check flights, um, weather, documentation, etc. So it becomes quite well regulated when done in accordance with the provisions in EASA. Especially so, I mean, with, with, with an Airbus or a Boeing approved, uh, or an Airbus course or a Boeing recommended service for the, uh, the flight training manual. Postmates test flying is, especially on a jet, I imagine can be quite hazardous. I mean, we saw with that um, calamity of errors, if you will, um, with the incident that you mentioned earlier, the alpha veins or the angle of attack veins, no, two freezing up, one functioning, uh, crew haven't planned it correctly. This is something that can be, um, you know, quite life-threatening if not approached correctly. Um, how dangerous is post-maintenance test flying if we look at the numbers of incidences that have occurred over the years? Um, so the exact specific or exact stats are not clearly available, but it is definitely more risky than a line flight. So for a, an airline pilot, it's probably the most risky type of operation that you can undertake uh, in the duty of the airline. Uh, if it's correctly planned and correctly trained and correctly briefed, that risk is, is largely mitigated because uh, you put in place contingencies. But if one charges into one of these post-maintenance check flights without correct preparation, planning and briefings, it can be very dangerous and fatal, as evidenced by that A320 crash. Um, so it's, it's super important that the correct preparation is conducted and the crew are adequately trained in order to mitigate the risk as much as possible. Now, let's go back to your initial experience with post-maintenance stress flying. Um, you know, you put your hand up, I want to learn a bit more about it. Based on where the program was when you started, where did you, how has it evolved over the time you've been uh, part of that program and why did you see the need for the post-maintenance test program to evolve? Having consulted with industry experts who had attended the Airbus uh, post-maintenance test flying course um, and then comparing their standpoints to our own operational procedures, it became clear to me we weren't putting enough emphasis on, on this. Um, the most important thing with post-maintenance test flying is it's not an excuse for someone to get out the office for an hour to go and take the aircraft for a quick flip around the circuit. And very often that is how it is conducted um, across all different types of operations, from flight schools to charter companies to airlines. Um, I certainly, uh, over the years, have been phoned many times, can you come in and do a quick MPI acceptance flight on an aircraft? And that's a massive red flag. Nothing about it is quick. 
So I felt that we weren't doing the correct amount of research beforehand to see what work had been done to the aircraft. We were not testing the aircraft fully in compliance with the Boeing recommendations. And as a result of that, there existed a possibility of returning the aircraft back to line service with latent defects. And at the end of the day, that's what we're really trying to mitigate. So we don't want to return the aircraft back to service with a latent defect that can affect the operation once it's back in commercial service. Uh, there's a safety consideration there from passengers and crew, but also a commercial consideration. We don't want the aircraft breaking down at night station. So it's our responsibility. It's almost a quality assurance responsibility to make sure that that aircraft is performing exactly as it should across all systems when we return that aircraft to the line, line crew and line service. And what's important with the post-maintenance check flight operation here is we're only checking in flight aspects which we can't check on the ground. Now, when we do these checks, the majority of the checks we do are actually done on the ground before. We spend a good number of hours with the aircraft, even a day with the aircraft beforehand, running through a series of ground checks. And the only aspects which can't be checked on the ground are then checked in flight. Uh, for example, on the Boeing 737, it has a system called the auto slat system, which deploys the leading edge slats as one approaches the stall. That can't be checked on the ground. The only way to check that that's functioning correctly is to actually approach the stall in flight. Uh, another example would be a GPWS system to make sure that it's receiving all the necessary inputs and triggering at the correct time. Uh, but majority of the testing is actually done on the ground beforehand. And uh, that requires time, requires patience, um, it requires preparation to make sure you know what you're looking for. And that actually starts several days to weeks in advance with uh, the crew consulting the technical department to verify what works we've done on the aircraft and what we need to check and what we need to look for. And uh, again, that wasn't and, and isn't always done. Uh, many a time, the crew on the phone and ask, can you come in an hour for a check flight? And, uh, and that's really not, not the way it should be done. And just seeing anything that, that might be evidently wrong or might pop up, you know. We worked on the gear, just cycle the gear, see this particular issue with it. If there isn't, it must be obviously good to go. Uh, like you mentioning, it's a lot more involved than that, also considering the, the complexity of the aircraft that, that you're dealing with. Um, so based on, on what you've done with your operator, what kind of reference or source material are you using other than Boeing to create your own operator-specific manual to deal with post-maintenance test flying? How big is this manual? Is it a couple of pages? Is it you know a tome of 2,000 pages? And how exactly is it structured? Um, so in terms of what resources um, we've used, we've uh, used the EASA uh, part ops regulations, which are the EASA legislation. And uh, we've used that as a, as a blueprint, as a template, putting our, our documentation together. Uh, then there are several other publications by various bodies around the world which give you good guidance into the philosophy of test flying, one of which is published by the Flight Safety Foundation, and it's called the Functional Check Flight Compendium, and that's available freely on the web. It's a, it's a long document. It's a 79-page document, and that just goes into philosophy. Um, and one of in my opinion, one of the best publications that I've read and researched on the topic is an Airbus publication. It's in their uh, Safety First magazine. It's the October 2015 version of the Airbus Safety First magazine, and it's simply called Functional Check Flights. And that gives a fairly good foundation as to what one is looking to achieve with the post-maintenance check flight program. Um, so then dovetailing all that information with our regulations, 
we then looked to the Boeing documents, which would be the Boeing uh, document on, uh, on post-maintenance uh, test flying, as well as certain parts of the aircraft maintenance manual. Um, in certain instances, a test flight is required as a step in the maintenance process. The final sort of step in the maintenance process is to conduct a test flight on it. Um, and so that's where we sought further information to put our manual together. And it's it's not a ginormous manual. Um, we can just bring it up here, but it's approximately 100 pages long. So, um, And that, that contains, at this stage, everything that we need to do. It. I'm not saying it's the, the be-all and the end-all. That's just how we've elected to do it. I'm sure there are other operators with way more insight into this topic than I have who have a far more comprehensive uh, platform. But ours is a, is a new platform, and it's growing, and it's, it's improving. Every time we use it, it gets better. Well, that's fantastic. You know, one always wants to be seen to be continuously improving um, in you know any any kind of operation. Just shows growth and development. Now, can you just take us through how you would approach a typical post maintenance test flight? Like, what are the what is the process? What's the work that goes into um, you know having this flight happen? Um, how many days ahead of time do you speak to the technical department? What are the things you look for? What are the things you assess? Do you fly the same sequence of exercises every time you go up? Or is it dependent on the kind of, of um, maintenance that was done? Um, so let me ask, uh, answer the sort of last question first. In terms of the actual flight we do, um, yes, it's dependent on the work that was done to the aircraft. Um, so one of the tests that I'd like to talk about shortly is a, called an elevator power off test. Essentially, it's a, a manual reversion part of the check on the 737 when the hydraulics get switched off. But that's only necessary if certain work has been done to the uh, elevator uh, mechanism and the, the balance tab mechanism in the elevator. So that work hasn't been done and that test is not necessary at all. Um, so it is sort of tailor-made depending on the work that's been done. In terms of how long in advance the preparation, et cetera, uh, the first thing is one has to be flexible. My experience is for every three or four times you get call-outs to the airport to do a test flight, you'll actually only fly on the, on the fourth or fifth time. And very will arrive and there'll be some problem, either a technical defect or a paperwork issue or a weather issue, and we'll go home and we'll come back the next day. Um, so to try and be as flexible as possible. But normally about two weeks uh, in advance, um, we'll start with speaking to the technical department to find out what work was done, and what we need to do in terms of the test flight, putting together a crew and making sure the crew is aware of what needs to be done in the test flight, we'll typically have a Zoom meeting or uh, or two with technical. And uh, as the test flight date approaches, there's continuous correspondence between us and technical regarding the CAA paperwork and readiness of the aircraft and have the engineering department done their checks, the engine runs, et cetera. And then a few days before, we'll speak to our flight planning guys to make sure the flight is correctly planned, that air traffic control flight plans are filed. And if that all goes according to plan, then it's typically a two-day exercise where we do one day of ground checks, and if those are all passed and uh, we're happy, then we'll fly the aircraft probably the next day. If we pick up issues in the ground checks, it may take a day or three for them to correct those issues before the aircraft can be flown. And uh, in some instances, the test flight itself is, is not satisfactory. We've got to go and repeat aspect of the flight, um, which case we may do two, even three test flights on the aircraft. So it's, it's quite a long process. Um, it'll start you know, a good number of weeks, probably about two weeks before the actual flight date. And uh, as I said, it almost always leads to you arriving at the airport at least three times and going home when the aircraft isn't ready to fly. A word from our sponsor. Located in the heart of the Sunshine Coast, 43 Air School is Africa's best and busiest flight school, 
offering you a wide range of aviation courses from a private pilot license, airline pilot license, aircraft mechanic courses and so much more. Visit 43airschool at www.43airschool.com to learn more. Before the break, I'll ask you the question. You mentioned, you know, invariably you get to the airfield, something often comes up, you have to end up going back a few times uh, before the flight actually happens. You mentioned a big part about the flight or what actually takes up quite a substantial amount of time is the elements of the tests that are done on the ground. So how much time do you look at spending on the ground? I know you mentioned you dedicated a day of that portion of the testing specifically to the ground runs. Why so much, uh, why so much uh, work on the ground before taking it to the air? So the ground test um, actually forms the bulk of the, uh, the test schedule. Um, and it's testing every system to make sure it's operating correctly before you take the aircraft into the air. Um, and it's, it's very, very exhaustive. So to give you some examples, I mean, we go as far as testing every single light in the flight deck to make sure that they're working correctly. Uh, then we go through the, say, the pressurization system or the air conditioning system to make sure that all the over temperature protections operate as they are supposed to. And that probably takes five minutes per temperature zone and there are three zones. So that's 15 minutes on one particular aspect of one test. Um, flight controls. We do physical flight control checks with observers standing outside looking at the different control surfaces with all the hydraulics working with one of the primary systems fails, the system A switched off. Then we repeat with system B switched off and verify that the correct panels are all moving on the wings, the spoilers, the add-ons, et cetera. Uh, then we do the manual reversion and make sure all the controls are working in the correct sense, correct direction. Um, and that's quite a logistical exercise because, of course, you've got someone standing, a team of people standing outside to communicate back to you. Uh, so that all takes a good number of hours. Um, with practice, we've gotten better at it, but it takes about uh, five or six hours to get through all of those ground checks. And uh, in terms of what causes us to not be able to fly, I'll give you the three examples that we've had most recently. Uh, one of the aircrafts, during all the ground checks, the system enunciator on the recall stopped working. It was working when we started and then it stopped working midway through. And uh, that's the benefit of having that fail on the ground. At least it could be fixed on the ground before we were able. If that had failed in flight, we would have had to repeat the flight. Uh, it took them a good two or three days to actually fix that. It was quite a complex uh, fix. Another one involved the paperwork pertaining to a modification to the cabin lighting that required CA approval of the supplementary time certificate. And although we were ready to fly and the aircraft was actually good to go, we hadn't received the STC approval from CA and that took a few days to come through. And so, uh, yeah, there are some unforeseen sort of issues that do crop up and uh, that does require the crew and, and the staff to be quite flexible. And then in another instance, also most recently, we had to repeat the test flights because one of the parameters was outside of tolerances on the flight. And there had to be an adjustment made by the engineers and then a subsequent flight was done two or three days later. Now, there are a lot of elements to this that need to come right in order to make this flight happen, you know, from technical aspects, um, administrative aspects. Do you have uh, a specific itemized list that you mentioned earlier on that you're ticking off? We have the, the correct documentation. We authorize for this flight. These are the elements that we'll be working with today. And you just continuously tick off those aspects uh, just to make sure that everything is in place. Yes, so we put all those aspects into our, uh, our company uh, flight test manual and um, it's a question of just working through them one by one. So you're absolutely right. And uh, when we get to the actual testing of the systems on the aircraft, you're looking at 
of the, of the 100 pages in the manual about 88 systems checks. And it's a question of going through those also one at a time and verifying we get the correct outcome and then ticking it off and moving on. So it's quite a tedious process. It's not a question of jumping and going and have fun with the airplane. It's a, it's a very long, tedious, but very rewarding process. That six hours is, uh, I mean, after six hours, you must be absolutely finished. And I'm pretty sure it's not even including, you know, the pre-brief getting to the ground run itself. I mean, that, that's a full day just for one aircraft. Yeah, absolutely right. So that's why we try, if we can, and do the, the flight on a different day to the ground checks, just because, first of all, it gives the technicians a chance to rectify any defects that we found. But secondly, it is it gets a bit much, you know, to go and do a six hours of ground checks, then go and do a three-hour flight afterwards. It becomes a very long day. And uh, we always want to do this in daylight if we can. Specifically, the flight should be done in daylight. We don't run out of daylight. So it's better from a human factors perspective and from a safety perspective to try and slip them across two days. Yeah, and something that particular, so you, want to, you don't want to be fatigued going into, I mean, you could quite easily miss an element, which is, you know, quite critical to the, to the safe functioning of the aircraft. So, Absolutely. you know, managing the human element, like you said, that, that must be a major part, part of that process. Um, and then, of course, so the aircraft checks out, documentation is in place, uh, you've done the six hours of ground run. Now, one of the things you've mentioned to us is manual reversion. Just for people that might not be familiar with exactly what manual reversion is, could you just take us a bit more into that? Sure. So manual reversion is the name given to, certainly on the 737, to the scenario where all the uh, primary hydraulic systems, system A and system B, are no longer powering your flight controls and you're flying the aircraft by physically applying pressure to the control wheel and moving cables and pulleys, which move the control services, which is a real sort of backup control system for in the event of, of a, a dual hydraulics failure. Uh, now, part of the, the test flight is to essentially simulate that type of a failure by disabling both system A and system B uh, flight control modules to check how the aircraft handles, specifically if work has been done to the elevator balance tab actuator mechanism. And uh, what we don't want in, in, a, in a real life line crew, uh, line flight scenario is for the crew to have a, a really bad day and they lose both their hydraulic systems and to discover then and there that the aircraft is unflyable, manual reversion, it's largely out of trim, et cetera. So we, we check that in, in the test flight to make sure that the aircraft uh, behaves itself within certain tolerances uh, with both system A and system B hydraulic systems switched off. And that's so probably one of the the more dangerous tests we do. But you're doing that on the ground and in flight every test? Yeah, so we did on the ground um, to verify that uh, all the required control services are moving uh, in the correct direction and are, and are actually working. Um, something which I think very few people are aware of on a 737, but on the elevator, you've got a balance tab, which, uh, which obviously moves with elevator deflection, and that's specifically for manual reversion flying. But that tab reverses direction when flaps are extended. So it works as a balance tab with the flaps attracted and an anti-balance tab with flaps extended. So that's one of the things we test on the ground to make sure that that tab reverses its direction. Obviously, the only way to check that is to have someone stand there and to, to physically observe it. Um, and then we do the test in flight. Um, it's a very thoroughly published procedure from the maintenance manual that you switch off. The hydraulic systems themselves aren't actually switched off, but you're switching off the flight control modules and the spoilers. And the airplane will typically pitch. And uh, in my experience, it almost always pitched nose down. And it's a question of then maintaining the attitude with pressure on the control wheel. And due to the lack of hydraulics available, it's, it's very stiff and heavy to fly the airplanes on, on the controls or manual reversion. 
And then one has to count the number of turns of stabilizer trim, manual stabilizer trim, to restore an in trim condition. And that value of, of stabilizer trim wheel turns gets plotted on an envelope along with the center of gravity to determine if, it, if it's within limits or not. Now, to give an example, there were two instances in the UK, I think 2012, where uh, the aircraft pitched aggressively nose down during this particular check. And it led to a full-on jet upset condition with the aircraft, you know, ended up with a 20,000 foot per minute rate of descent, 30 degree nose down attitude, speeds in excess of 400 knots, et cetera. And luckily in both instances, the crew were able to, to regain control. But you can see why, again, crew training is important to know how to uh, recover from such a situation, specifically with manual revision, because you're really going to be fighting the aircraft in that particular sure. instance. It's going to be very, very heavy on the controls. So it's almost akin to um, losing the power steering on your car for someone that hasn't experienced it before. Absolutely right. Yeah, that would be a good way of, of, uh, of comparing or you know, driving a car without power steering versus driving one with power steering. It gets uh, to be quite a different experience. Um, you know, to give you further elaboration on the dangers of this particular flight, if the aircraft does pitch aggressively, let's say nose down, you can't simply corrected by holding back pressure on the on the control wheel and trimming the nose up and then switch the hydraulics back on because if you if you have trimmed the aircraft considerably during the check and then you put the hydraulics back on it could then pitch aggressively in the opposite direction and that could lead to uh, either a stall if you're below maneuver speed or a structural failure if you're above maneuver speed so an understanding of, of maneuver speeds and va etc is also important and that all forms part of, of upset prevention recovery training and that's an important aspect of the pilot course for post-maintenance check flights is an understanding of UPRT principles and recovery techniques. Uh, mm -hmm. Coming back to the example I mentioned earlier in the UK, when the aircraft pitched so aggressively nose down, the PIC had been told that to recover from these large pitch excursions, he should roll the aircraft to 70 degrees first, which he did. And of course, in this instance, that just caused the nose to pitch down even further. And they ended up with a 30 degree nose down pitch attitude and a very high speed situation. That was not an appropriate recovery strategy. But 2012, that was before UPRT really became a widely practiced training course. Uh, we now know that that's, that wouldn't have been appropriate for a nose down pitch, but, but a nose up pitch excursion. And you are doing this exercise or this test specifically every single time you conduct a post maintenance test flight? Uh, if, if work's been done on the elevator actuator, elevator balance tab actuator, yes. If no work has been done on that system, then no, the test is not necessary. Okay. But still, it's, uh, it's highlighting again the risks associated with the post-maintenance test flight, something that, that naturally should be quite well, well, one would hope it's quite well regulated um, because of the risk involved. It's Absolutely right. So this particular test, which, I, as I said, I think is probably the most dangerous part, the most risky part of the test. We we briefed beforehand before we get anywhere near the uh, the airport. Both of us would have, uh, all three of us, in fact, in the flight deck would have, you know, sort of studied the procedure and be aware of it. Then we talk about it on the ground, and then just just before we do it, we have a little mini brief from the flight deck as well. And when I've done the flights from the left hand seat, it's most appropriate for the pilot in the right hand seat to actually be part of flying for the check because the switches okay. are above the left-hand seat pilot's head. So it's a question of, okay, I'm about to switch off system A, confirm, confirm, uh, and then be ready for the, the pitch excursion. And when you get the pitch excursion, if there is one, don't trim the aircraft until we're ready to start counting the number of turns of stabilizer trim, because there's no point in uh, immediately trimming the aircraft and then not having counted the number of turns of stab trim, 
because then your ability to plot the information on the envelope is compromised. And that defeats the object of, of the test. So that's an important point of, of the post-maintenance check flying is also to extract very, very accurate data uh, for the engineering teams to be able to rectify any defects with the aircraft. We had a situation um, over a long period of time with an aircraft that was rolling uh, considerably with flap 40 when landing flaps were selected, a good roll. And the process of obtaining information about what was happening uh, wasn't being followed correctly, it wasn't being done correctly. And a lot of incorrect information was conveyed to technical and they rectified or they attempted to rectify the snag based on this incorrect information they received from the pilots and actually made it worse. Okay. So eventually we said, no, let's go and do a, a proper test flight in, in compliance with the Boeing AMM, which explains exactly how to do this procedure. And once we did that and we got accurate information, they were able to rectify the snake quite, quite easily. So it's very important for the crew to, to be super accurate with not only their flying, but with their extraction of, of readings and, and of information. You mentioned three pilots in the flight deck. Can you elaborate on, bit, uh, on that a bit specifically? Why three, not just the standard two? Absolutely. So the, the recommendations from overseas and, um, and from the specialists are to have three personnel on the flight deck, typically two pilots and then a flight test engineer on the jump seat. Okay. We found we can't really work with an engineer because we outsource our maintenance. So we did a three pilots. But the pilot on the jump seat or the, 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 the flight test coordinator on the jump seat is there for a, a very critical role because he or she actually almost runs the test. They call out what's next. They advise parameters that uh, need to be adhered to. They then make the observations and they take the recordings and, and write them down and uh, also act as a safety pilot. So it's an excellent workload management tool to have a third uh, person in the flight deck. They're absolutely critical to the safety of the flight. What's very important is at all times, one of the pilots must be flying the aircraft. You can't have a scenario where midway doing a test, both pilots are preoccupied with a system that possibly isn't functioning uh, optimally or correctly, and no one flies the aircraft. So the way we do it is one of the pilots always pilot flying, hands on the controls, eyes on the instruments, and then the real communication goes between the pilot monitoring, operating the system, possibly making switches and selections, and the uh, coordinator on the jump seat who's following through, uh, giving instructions and taking readings. But I've done it before where it's just two of us in the flight tech and the workload becomes very high, unexpectedly high, uh, very quickly, and it's not ideal. Yeah, also considering what you're doing uh, can have you know, a degree of risk to it. You, you want to try and minimize it as much as possible. Absolutely. I'll give you an example of one of the recent ones I did. We did the auto slat check, which I mentioned before, which is you do an mm. approach to stall and verify that the leading edge slats extend to the full extended position automatically. And I was part of monitoring for that. And between trying to monitor the approach to the stall, which is obviously quite a, a critical maneuver, and look at the overhead panel, which is sort of above and behind my head to try and verify the leading edge devices were working correctly. I actually missed the actuation of the autostats. And we had to then repeat mm. the exercise. Whereas if we'd had an observer on the jump seat who was able to verify system operation, I could have then been an accurate pilot monitoring and make sure my colleague was, uh, you know, was, was doing the approach to stall and recovery correctly. So what you don't want is an approach to stall and recovery where one pilot is looking above and behind him. You want both pilots to be you know, looking at the, at the instruments. So it's definitely a necessary workload management tool to have a third crew member on the flight deck. So you mentioned, uh, so we've spoken about manual version or associated with that. You've mentioned actually taking the aircraft, approaching the stall. Do you ever actually take the aircraft to the stall? 
No, no. So what's important here is, you know, we use the word test flight, but actually we're not, we're not testing anything. Test flying is what test pilot school graduates go and do for manufacturers, et cetera. What we're doing is check flying. So we're checking that the systems operate correctly. They're systems that are designed, they're certified. We're just checking that they operate correctly. So no, we, we don't want to approach, we don't want to reach the edge of the envelope at all. Okay. We want to approach the edge of the envelope and verify that all the systems that are in place uh, work correctly to stop us from an envelope excursion. But no, we don't intentionally stall the aircraft at all. Okay. Uh, are there any other tests that you feel may have a, a degree of risk that require very careful consideration, coordination from the crew before actually running that specific uh, check? Absolutely. So I mentioned the elevator power of test, and uh, that's obviously risky because of the pitch excursions. Um, what is very important, I will I'll add here, is we invariably have some engineers in the back of the aircraft as well, some support engineers. They assist us with any technical issues we may have. They also make observations for us, do cabin checks. And communication is key. So, for instance, when we are doing an elevator power-off test, we make sure everyone is strapped and seated because we don't want the aircraft to pitch aggressively while someone's trying to walk in the aisle. Um, but coming back to your question about uh, sort of higher risk tests, the uh, elevator power off test, the other one we do is a cabin leak rate test. We go up to the maximum certified mm -hmm. altitude of the aircraft, 41,000 feet. Uh, we switch off both air conditioning packs and we verify that the cabin doesn't instantly depressurize, that it uh, maintains a, a leak rate, as we call it, within a certain tolerance. And then when uh, the cabin altitude exceeds 10,000 foot, we go into oxygen. And we allow the cabin to continue depressurizing until it reaches 14,000 foot cabin altitude uh, to check that the oxygen mask in the back drop. Uh, we don't drop all the masks. So we uh, put in place a lockout mechanism for majority of them. So we're just checking that the little panel sort of opens slightly, but doesn't drop the masks. Uh, but certain other masks we do then configure to, to drop. And that's high risk because you're looking at a time of useful consciousness up there of about 15 seconds. So you, you're, sure. if you get it wrong, you know, you could have an incapacitated crew uh, at 41,000 foot. And that's obviously very, very dangerous. And it takes time to repressurize the cabin. So we find ourselves being in oxygen for a good 15 minutes afterwards as the cabin slowly, truly descends to a, a decent cabin altitude. And the temptation is there to say, everything's working on me. Let's get the masks off. But, but no, when the cabin altitude is above 10,000 foot. We must be in oxygen. Um, and the other test that I think is carries an element of risk is the engine spool up and, and spool down check at 41,000 feet. So essentially you'll establish certain flight parameters, Mach number of four correctly of 0.78. And then one at a time, I'll take the engine to maximum continuous power and then snap the thrust lever to idle and verify the engine retards to idle uh, without flaming out. And once it's stabilized at idle, slam the thrust lever back to max continuous power and verify the engine spools up without any compressor stalls or surges, et cetera. And that's risky because obviously you're going from a, a low thrust to a high thrust thrust stage very rapidly, very large changes in thrust and, and very large asymmetries in thrust that are happening quite quickly. And being at, uh, at 41,000 feet there, uh, the potential for a, a jet upset is quite high if it's not controlled accurately. The rudder is very sensitive at that high altitude and high speed. So again, one needs to fly the aircraft carefully. Um, and as I've also seen, when you're doing this check, you're doing it on one engine at a time, and it's very easy to have the speed either decay or to increase to an undesirably high value. So you've got to be very, very aware of your speed. So I would say those three checks, the elevator power off, the cabin depressurization or leak rate, and the uh, engine spool up, spool down check are probably the three most high-risk checks we do. Okay, definitely. Yeah, that sounds 
certainly uh, certainly challenging and uh, definitely yeah like you mentioned something that that one should approach with reverence and very careful consideration before for conducting that kind of test now it being such an involved process once that test is done you park the aircraft what's the process thereafter uh, so there's always lots of paperwork to do um in our particular instance any defects that are observed or recorded in the aircraft technical logbook uh, we also have to record the uh, auto land we always do an auto land uh, on these test flights to verify the automatic landing system and there's paperwork associated with that and then there's a post test flight report that we have to fill in as well for the uh, technical for, for the, the amo or the maintenance organization where readings are taken and then we have our own company documentation as well which we fill in with all the different parameters and, and readings etc which goes into filing from a qa point of view and uh, we do that followed by a debrief with the engineers where we talk to them about what issues we may have experienced and uh, and what have you. So after the flight, it's not a question of simply, you know, unplug your headsets and pick up your bag and go home. You're probably with the aircraft for another hour and a half or so to two hours afterwards. Um, and one or two instances, I've actually had to come home and then write a full report that the aircraft behaved particularly badly in the test flight. Uh, I actually had to come home and write a full report for, uh, for, for the technical management as to what we saw and, and what we what we noted. So there's a, a big responsibility for the crew to follow through right to the very end of, of the process to make sure all the information is made available to technical and uh, they are then able to, to use that information to rectify any defects or faults that you may have found. Matt, now in total, you've broken this process down very clearly and, and um, in a lot of detail. How much time or how many man hours did you say once putting forward towards just one post-maintenance flight test. If you have to include all the paperwork, all the pre-brief, all the debrief, the drives to and from the airport, what? how much time are you dedicating to a post-maintenance test flight? Start to it's, a, it's a good question, Daniel. I haven't uh, tallied it up, but it's it's a lot. You know, um, I'm, I'm not going to guess here now, but uh, just the airport activity alone, you're looking at, as I said, about possibly six hours of ground tests, possibly three hours of, of flight tests, uh, probably a good hour between the ground test and the flight tests, uh, or maybe two hours you know, post-ground test and pre-flight duties, et cetera. Uh, maybe a good hour and a half to two hours afterwards filling in paperwork, possibly returning to the airport a day or two later for a, a subsequent flight if the aircraft wasn't within uh, within tolerance. So it's, it's, it's a good number of hours. Um, it, it's a lot. It's, simple, it's not a question of Typical airline roster, arrive at a sign-on time, go and do your flight, sign off and go home. It's nothing like a normal airline flight. And uh, I have found that over the time, some of the crew we've brought in are a little bit inflexible. They almost want to arrive at a specific time, fly in and go home at a specific time, and it's nothing like that. It requires a high degree of flexibility. But uh, I can't give an exact number of hours, but a lot. Now, given how thorough you're approaching this program, what are some of the positive spin-offs? Now, obviously, safety-wise, massive spin-off. You test an aircraft thoroughly before it returns to the line. Um, so, you know, any kind of latent defect that might be hiding within the aircraft can be addressed, you know, before you even get to that point. So, safety, massive benefit. What are some of the other positive spin-offs you could get from running a program as, as thorough as you've been running? Um, I think from an individual perspective, it's very rewarding to put the work in um, and to then see the aircraft go back into service and to go and fly passengers around the country, knowing that you know all of your efforts 
to clear any snags and defects and test the aircraft have been successful and that the passengers are able to board that aircraft in, in full faith that the aircraft is serviceable. Um, and I think it's also highlighted to the team that I have involved with me just how, how important this job is and how important it is for them to be uh, studious and accurate with their work. And uh, on that basis, we've all had to increase our, our technical knowledge quite considerably with, with the aircraft because obviously we need to know uh, systems and, and their interactions and their limitations, et cetera. And uh, from that point of view, it's, yeah, it's, it's very rewarding. It's, it's a lot of work. It's not a fun, uh, let's go and have some fun with the aircraft type exercise, but it's very rewarding when it goes well. And uh, as I said, I, I seek a lot of uh, reassurance by knowing the aircraft are being returned to the line uh, in, a, in a good, serviceable, reliable condition. You know, it's very possible that the aircraft could come out of maintenance and its first day of line flying could be the worst possible thunderstorms of the year. And that aircraft's first flight could be into terrible weather. And, and we know that that aircraft is, is you know, right for the job. It's, it's up to the job because it's been adequately tested. Absolutely. And I'm pretty sure for anyone that might be flying uh, one of the aircraft you've tested, there's a great peace of mind knowing that uh, it's been thoroughly checked out after maintenance, returned to the line in good nick, and the, you have full confidence in the aircraft at the end of the day. It goes Absolutely. a long way, I'm sure. Uh, it, just, was it was quite well sort of publicized earlier this year where one of the Mango aircraft suffered a decompression event. It was all over the news, et cetera. So I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Many of, of the listeners will be aware of that. And we did a lot of uh, the, the testing and systems testing and the test flying on that aircraft afterwards. Um, and it took us three days. And we were just focusing on one particular system, but it took us three days of testing and, and subsequent work and retesting to make sure everything was absolutely perfect with that aircraft. Um, and when it did return to line, it was it was good. It was good to go. There was no doubt in any of our minds that the aircraft was, was, was fixed and it was very, very safe again. Brilliant. It's great to, have, to know that and it's great to, to know the guys like you and your team making sure that you know, that's, that's being checked out and like I said, it's it's serviceable and your operator also has confidence to know that you have done a thorough job and you know they don't expect any, any further issues in uh, on the line. Now, one more question, Matt. Uh, it's not something we brought up. Um with the team that you have with you, the guys that are involved in the post-maintenance test program, uh, you mentioned training is such a core component. You touched on UPRT being a, an element of it. Now, it not being regulated, your operator and your, your team obviously have an internal program that they need to comply with before they can be released to test or post-maintenance uh, testing duties. What does that program consist of and, and how thorough is it? So the program is still in development. Um, we hope to, to implement it fully in due course, subject to, to Mango's future. But the syllabus is based largely on the EAS syllabus. Um, it'll be a, a bit of pre-reading beforehand. Uh, I will set the crew some homework to, to do some reading beforehand, specifically that Airbus uh, check flight uh, article that I mentioned earlier on in the conversation. Uh, then we do a two-day ground school. And the ground school covers uh, the legal aspects, which is obviously a big part of it, the philosophy of what we're there to do, workload management, uh, risk management, theory of UPRT, uh, normal test flight profiles, uh, and non-normal test flight profiles. And then we'll do two days in the simulator. One session of approximately four hours will be a normal flight test profile. 
so that uh, at least when the crew go and do it for real, they've done it once before, start to finish. Uh, we don't do the ground tests in some, but the, uh, the airborne tests. And then the second sim session will be non-normal events where we'll design, we have designed a couple of uh, scenarios based on, on things that have happened around the world uh, to allow the crew to deal with it. The objective here is not to, to scare the people or to trick them, but it's to demonstrate or to educate them as to some of the, the risks that could be involved. As an example, um, you get airborne. And as you get airborne, all of a sudden, a number of your electronic systems in the aircraft fail on rotation. You lose a whole host of avionics, et cetera, uh, which has happened before. That would become quite a, a tricky exercise to deal with. Uh, the cause of that might be something along the lines of uh, avionics modules and the electronic and equipment bay that were not correctly stowed or left and slid out of their racks during a rotation. Um, control jams, which, which has happened before, control freezing, um, aircraft pitching aggressively during that elevator power off test. So we, we've got a couple of ideas, and it's not to, to trick or, or, or scare the people, as I said, but it's to rather to train the crew uh, to expect the unexpected with these, these flights. Um, and uh, then in addition to that, in line with the EASA requirements, we're also specifying recency. It doesn't help that you do the course and then don't do a test flight for three years and then have to go into the flight. So we would like to either put the crew through a refresher and simulator once a year, or at least have them attend or conduct one actual test flight per year, just to ensure they maintain a degree of, of recency. You know, an aircraft, an airline with a small fleet isn't going to be doing these flights very often. An airline with a, with a big fleet will be doing them almost monthly. Uh, so we need to cater for our, little, our airline with a small fleet where these flights don't come up very often. Sure, no, sure. And, and given I'm involved, it is <laughs> recency definitely something that needs to be in place um, you know, because documentary crew coordination plays a massive part uh, in that whole exercise. Now, Matt, before we, we wrap up, just one question. Guys that are listening out there um, that might be starting their, their careers out into industry, uh, getting involved in local, local charter companies or maybe uh, charter companies operating abroad, they're considering going into post uh, getting involved in post maintenance testing like you like you do um and have that at all levels what advice would you have for for prospective parts or parties looking going into doing that kind of work so when it comes to doing post maintenance um test flight operations no egos are welcome leave your ego at home you are not there to prove how good you are you are there to prove how good the airplane is or how how good it isn't. Um, so it's not an ego exercise. Make sure that every test flight is thoroughly planned. You know exactly what you're going to go and do to try and minimize the number of surprises because there are going to be surprises. But if you're following a rigorous profile, you can largely minimize the number of surprises and know how to handle them. And as far as you can, stick to the plan. If you've planned a particular sequence, uh, stick to it. When you start to, to change the plan, rapidly um, as was done on that A320 accident we mentioned earlier on, things can go wrong quite, quite, quite quickly. And I would recommend that anyone that's interested in post-maintenance check flying operations takes the time to download and read the uh, Airbus functional check flight article in the Airbus Safety First magazine published uh, October 2015. It's a 25-page article which documents almost everything we've said in this conversation about crew selection, training, and, and test flight operations. 
And I'd also encourage them to read a document called the Functional Check Flight Compendium, published by the Flight Safety Foundation, which is very much the same type of document. It explains a lot of the human factors and the practical practicalities of test flying. And once all of those concepts are firmly ingrained, then uh, I think a candidate has a good idea of what they're out to do. But don't ever fall into the trap of being phoned and asked to come and do a quick test flight. It should never be a quick test flight. It should be a thoroughly planned and, and well-researched exercise. And, uh, thanks for taking your time to offer your technical insight on the topic. It's been great listening to it, and uh, I, I certainly learned a lot. And thanks for being on the show. We'll have to have you back. Uh, Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been great chatting. Uh, take care, and thanks very much for the opportunity. Brilliant. We look forward to it, and uh, take care, minutes. You look after yourself. We'll chat again soon. You're listening to PPC Industry Talks. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. We'll be bringing you new episodes weekly.